Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Kidnor, founder of leading Australian podcast agency, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome back to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Are you a video game fan? Do you remember years of your parents asking you to get off the computer? What if you could turn that supposedly pesky passion into a business, working with Fortune 500 companies and become a successful TEDx speaker? Well, today's guest, Banuka Harishchandra, did exactly that. In today's episode, we sit down with co-founder of Surge Global, a digital media and technology company focusing on helping businesses grow. Throughout our chat, Banoka shares his advice for pushing through when it feels like there's no way, how his teenage passions changed his life, and why perfectionism can cripple a business. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now Post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, welcome Banuka. Banuka. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. And my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Amazing. So, you know, you and I recently connected and when I looked into you and all of the amazing work you're doing in digital marketing and business, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. It's completely my pleasure. Awesome. Great. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so it's a long story, um, but the short version is I run a digital consultancy called Surge. And what we do is we work with businesses all around the world to help them build and scale digital teams um, that focuses on everything from digital strategy, digital growth, as well as product development. And we kind of exist as a consultant in the space to essentially drive profitable growth. So, so cool. You know, when I looked into the business and Surge Global, it's so impressive and it's so interesting. I can't wait to dive deeper into that. But before we do, 
I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? So I had a, a, an interesting childhood. I grew up and I still live here in Colombo, Sri Lanka. We're a tiny tropical island south of India next to the equator. Not a lot of people know where we live. Um, but I've had a lot of exposure growing up. Uh, my parents are in the medical profession, so my dad and mom are doctors. Uh, when he was doing his, I believe it was his PhD, they we lived in Melbourne for a couple of years. Ah, so the best city. <laughs> also, back then in Melbourne, now is completely different. But um, but <laughs> when I was between, I think like the years four through six, I lived in Melbourne, and then I came back here. Um, I've traveled a bit, but mostly my roots are here in Colombo. So cool. Sorry, I interrupted there, Banuka. Proud Melbourneian here. So shout out to our city. Incredible. So can you talk to us a little bit about your early days? So you grew up in Colombo and then did a stint in Australia. You know, how do you think that time shaped you? And I guess, what did you learn most about yourself during your childhood? So uh, my childhood was actually really nice. I had loving, caring parents with a really, you know, strong familiar bond. But I guess the only downside to living in an Asian country and having built and brought up a certain way is their expectation is that you get through school, you go to high school, you study medicine. And there's really no sidetrack beyond that. Um, so for context, my uh, dad is a doctor, professor. My mom is a uh, she was the first female oral and maxillofacial surgeon in the country. Wow. Um, my brother is also a doctor, has a first class. Um, and then he got married a year ago to someone who is a doctor, whose sister is a doctor, my grandfather's a doctor. Like, it's a very, very wow. academic, overachieving family. I was studying to be a doctor as well uh, when I was doing my advanced level exams, but that didn't really go according to plan. Um, I guess... The main thing for me is like back when I was five years old and in Melbourne and all of that, the exposure I got, we we were really in love with video games, um, specifically like Pokemon and Super Mario and all of that with the Nintendo 64. Um, it, it was a very interesting childhood where, you know, my brother and I used to play uh, video games. It was a new experience. We back then, we didn't really come from like a well-off family. Um, and if you're in Sri Lanka, you don't really have access to a lot of the things in the Western world, at least in the, you know, the 1999s, 2000s of the country. Um, Sri Lanka now is a lot different, but, you know, there was a lot of global exposure we gained within the short period of time. And we almost grew up with that same, like when we came back into the country, we grew up with that same space, same um, likeliness of uh, you know things around us and interacting with people and um, the internet then played a really big part in our lives so that that fondness for video games for me stuck since 2000 and it has been going on the actual turning point for surge was like surge didn't exist as surge it was really me and a couple of my friends you know going out and playing video games together recording ourselves do this and putting it on youtube the reason that we were okay with it knowing that we aren't really expecting people to watch us play let's play content and now is super out there and everyone knows about it but back then it was a, a little bit of a weird thing um but even when you know back in the day my brother and i were playing video games most of the time if you have an older brother it's him playing and you watching him play 
And that kind of stuck with us throughout. So we basically created this content, put it out there on the internet, and people were watching us. And we weren't particularly good. We weren't necessarily like professional or skilled or very funny for that matter. But, you know, we had found ourselves a little niche and people were watching our content. Um, fast forward a couple of years, what happened was we realized that, wait a second, you know, YouTube has this ability to monetize the content that you produce, which was for me, like a light bulb moment, wait a second, I can play video games and make a career out of it. Um, doesn't really go super well with your parents, considering the fact that, you know, you have just, you know, you're academic overachievers and your youngest child goes, no, I'm going to do Pokemon as a career. Doesn't really work. So um, it led to this thing where, you know, there was a lot of angst in the family. Like I wasn't studying. There was especially in this kind of culture, it's a lot of turmoil. Um, but we had this really bad moment where uh, YouTube suddenly pulled the rug from under us and said, monetization is only available in these markets. And uh, we had essentially started uh, this thing called an MCN uh, through a partner, which is basically, um, we were essentially helping other creators monetize their content. And we were doing a revenue share with them by you know, connecting them with advertisers and all of that. Um, but YouTube essentially said that if you're not directly affiliated with YouTube and or you're not in these six markets, you're out. So for us being in Sri Lanka, you know, um, I was probably 18 at the time. And, you know, you make like a thousand dollars a month. And if you're in 18, uh, if you're an 18 year old in Sri Lanka making a thousand dollars, you're living life to the fullest. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I was a complete nerd back then <laughs> when I mean by living life to the fullest it meant that you would spend an unreasonably large amount of money on video games. Um, but but really that's kind of how everything started. And then what happened with that falling apart was like our quote unquote business that we had started went from you know growing really well over about a year or two to non-existing um, the next day. And what sucks would, was the fact that, now this was in about 2013, um, I got my advanced level exam results the same week as like my entire career collapsing around me. Um, so I lied to my parents and I told them that the YouTube thing was going completely oh. fine. Um, was not going to tell them, hey, look, you were right. This was a fad and it disappeared. Um, <laughs> and, and obviously at the time it was me and one other person who was essentially someone I met uh, playing video games as well, um, who seven years later is still a part of the wow. business today. Um, and, and, you know, like my parents were going, yeah, sure, you have a business and it's on the internet and you have a friend that, you know, you've never met, but he's virtually living somewhere else. It's a very hard story to tell. Um, and, and I don't blame them for um, not believing me on that at that point. But we were not necessarily smart with our money. We didn't have any, you know, cushion of cash. So when um, YouTube pulled the plug, it was pretty rough. Like we had nothing and we didn't know what we were doing. So we were really just gritting it out for a couple of months to the point where we were going to say, look, this didn't work out. You guys were right. Um, luck turned for us and a business basically reached out to us and said, hey, we know what you guys are doing on YouTube for this video game thing. Um, but maybe forget the video game thing for a bit, but maybe you can help us create content on YouTube for our brands. 
And that was this light bulb moment where we went, okay, wait a second. So all this time we were compensated based on the number of views we got, the distribution of our content. But then there's someone here saying, I don't really care about the distribution. I'll actually pay you for the content creation aspect of itself, which was unheard of at the time. And we realized, okay, there's definitely something here. And we were called the Gamers Cottage at the time. We pivoted from that which is a you know video game distribution network to a content creation company, which was Surge. And then slowly we evolved from being a content creator to a you know digital agency, which then turned into a consultancy, which is now today. Um, and, and it's a funny story that the call is scheduled for today. So this was exactly seven years ago. And today we just issued our first dividend for the shareholders of the company. So it's a, it's a good day for us today. Oh goodness amazing congrats oh huge i find your story fascinating and obviously we've only heard a snapshot that you've just given us then but i want to go back to the thing that you mentioned around going against the grain and specifically against perhaps your family and and what the path they've laid out for you and all of that you know can you talk to us a little bit about what that time was like for you when your company disappeared overnight and you got your results back and your parents were like, what is happening? You know, how do we pick ourselves up when we feel like we've made the biggest mistakes in our lives and our parents were right? So I was in denial for a very long time. Um, <laughs> I it, It's a complicated situation because I've also been a very rebellious child. I, um, the going against the grain thing for me wasn't something that I had to intrinsically figure out how to do. It was something that was like baked into me from day one. Um, I was very fortunate in that position. And I was also incredibly privileged and fortunate from the point of, you know, I wasn't necessarily liable to food on the table or pay for rent. I was a, I was a kid growing up in a family unit that was, you know, taken care of. So um, I had the ability to take risk. Now, it's not a situation where, you know, someone came in, gave me a bunch of money so I can do something. But knowing that I didn't have those responsibilities and I was only responsible for myself made those kind of decisions a lot easier for me as well, right? Because in a way, it is a safety net. Um, I think the other thing is the way exam cycles work here is you have three shots. So you get graded and you take the same exam three times is as much as you can take. And if you take it, and even if you get through the third time, you would have been okay. Um, I wasn't a studious kid. I wasn't going to get into medicine. Um, and I hated studying. Not necessarily because I hate the subject. I love the subject now, mainly because I've gotten a whole bunch of crippling diseases, but that's a, that's a different story for another day. Um, but the way it's taught is very structured and structured in a way where it doesn't really interest you it's more of a remember these things in this specific sequence and write it exactly uh, in this order so you can get marks whereas you know the industry and the businesses that we're in are now you know find a problem figure out how to deconstruct the problem and solve it which is a very different outlook on life so I, I hated studying it was a rough patch and I I mean to be very honest, right? There were probably really dark moments where I just wanted to give up. But it it was just the fact that 
I hated the fact that it didn't work out and I was so in denial that I did not want to tell anyone that it completely disappeared. So we just kept on pushing through and doing it for as long as we can without really understanding the direction we were going until it kind of slowly snapped and started fitting into place. So I'd say we got a little lucky there as well. Um, you know, if, if the conversation was three, four months in and no one had that conversation saying, hey, we'll pay you to produce the content, we will probably not be having this conversation. So it's a little bit of everything uh, that kind of clicked into place over time. But yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one to answer. I don't think there is a direct response to that, really. And to each person, the way that they deal with those situations would probably be very different. I couldn't agree more. And I think you did so well navigating through that, you know, for our peers out there listening who feel, who feel misunderstood, you know, who feel like they're that black sheep that just, you know, we don't fit in and perhaps all of our friends are doing something or they're all on the law path or on the medicine path or whatever path it may be. And we just feel so out of place. And yet we don't know what we want to do yet. We're just not very clear on that. You know, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who feel confused and want to gain that clarity? I think the calling that everyone has is different. And then the way that they find it out for themselves is different as well. Um, Purely as like a stats nerd, my response would be, you know, just try a little bit of everything. It's okay to do things that you don't like, just experiment and you will realize that there are things that you like doing a lot more than things that you don't like doing. And uh, the beauty of the internet and the beauty of the age that we live in is you could probably make a comfortable living doing almost virtually anything. So even, Michelle, even if we take this podcast, right? 10, 20 years ago, if you said you wanted to do this seriously, people would have thought it was a joke because, you know... um, it's just not possible and the barriers to entry are so high whereas now you know everyone can do this and i think once you start experimenting with things and figuring out what makes the most sense for you and what makes you tick understand those patterns because the things that make you happy and make you want to get up in the morning are what you should be moving towards and that's really all there is to it um obviously it's oversimplified because there's a whole bunch of things you need to get out of the way before you can have that conversation. But in a nutshell, I think that's how I would approach that problem looking back. Uh, You know, the way I did it was very much stumbling into it and making a lot of bad decisions. But, you know, hindsight is 20-20, right? (laughs) So true. Amazing. So I want to dive a bit deeper into the story, you know, so... This company has approached you. You've decided to pivot and realized the business model essentially that's going to work for you. You know, what does, what does those next couple of years look like? You know, I think you started this business, as you mentioned it very young, I think it was 18 or 19, you know, while you were still studying and all of that. Talk to us a little bit about when you made that pivot and kind of the coming years, like what did they look like? And I guess what were some of the challenges you had to tackle from there on? So I wouldn't say like when we figured out that content creation as a service worked, I don't think it actually did. It worked better than what we had before, but as a business model, it was very limiting. 
Um, it was good at the time because it was some money through the door, which is a lot better than what we had. Um, and, and the business now is completely different to the point where we did no longer even create content for brands. What we realized was there was an opportunity in terms of not the solution we provided, but the problem that existed, which was communication and management of yourself on the internet required a lot of effort and people didn't realize how to do it. So content was a segue into that journey, but it wasn't the actual uh, solution to the problem. So we really fell in love with this problem. And you know, over the next couple of years, the because we had identified a solution, which was content creation, we started doubling down on that. We increased the number of people we had on, on the team. So it started with two people, uh, went to about um, four or five uh, freelancers and then a couple of full-time people. We were going out pitching to businesses and we were really striking any deal that we could land. So majority of the time we got our projects, they were either not you know, properly financed, they were, they, the pricing was pretty off. Um, and we had really tough issues collecting payments because unlike working in markets like the US and Australia and things like that, Sri Lanka operates in a very different set of rules. Um, you respect your elders. So even if you do work that you both agree on and you go to collect the check, they can just say no and you're pretty stuck. And there's almost an expectation of, oh, you have to listen to me because I'm older than you. And, you know, being a 19, 20 year old in corporate Sri Lanka, it's, it's, it's a lot of bullying. It's not an easy thing to do. And the bigger the organization you work with, the tougher this becomes. And a lot of agencies around the world still have this problem where cash collection is really tough. And we didn't have the resources or the credibility to build before we started a project. So it was always, you know, I'd say half of our time really went into going behind people and collecting um, money for work that we had agreed on and rightfully done. And for the most part, we probably got like 50 cents on the dollar. Wow. And even then, like, I'll tell you a fun metric. Like we, I was, we went through an acquisition back in 2019 and then that was probably the best decision from the career of our business. But we found out when we were going through the books, the average time taken to collect a check after the work was done was something like 162 days, <gasps> which is ridiculous oh, if you think about goodness. it, right? So we were operating on shoestrings for the longest time um, until I think we almost went bust twice, purely because on paper we were doing really well. We were getting all these projects, our income was going up, but cash flow was just dire, right? So the first couple of years of the business was that, and we realized that, look, we cannot grow in this market or the services that we were offering were just too complicated and too difficult. And I mean, especially in the content creation space, once you create that content and they publish it, the incentive for them to pay you is really low. Yeah. They're, they're done. They've gotten what they wanted out of it. Um, so we started looking at new things that we could offer, which is how we looked at you know web design, uh, running ads, social analytics. And when we said we looked at web design, it was basically us going and selling and pitching a project and then coming back and watching four hours of YouTube videos so that we know how to do it and then doing it and they go, oh, okay. Um, 
And the good thing about being in markets like Sri Lanka is that the bar is pretty low. So we had the luxury of failing again and again. We did services at lower price points, but it still allowed us to upskill ourselves without having any tech, like we didn't have any technical background in these things. So we had to learn on the job. And um, I don't think we would have been able to pull that off anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So Sri Lanka for us was this really interesting testbed and training ground of collecting a bunch of people uh, that didn't necessarily have these skills ingrained in them. It, they haven't learned it, but they were technically competent people. Um, they could speak English really well, so they could communicate with the rest of the world if they had to. And that's kind of when the opportunity started switching and we realized that um, you know we use freelance platforms and things like that and gotten a couple of uh, clients here and there outside. And that was kind of like us going, okay, we can do this. We can do this at a different scale. We can do this outside. And the reason we pulled that trigger was, uh, I think the first couple of projects before we started doing it, we got paid and we went, wait a second, what? <laughs> and, you know, it was these little, little moments that made us go, okay, we know what we we're chasing after. We know what the problems are and this is how we solve it. 2008. 17, we started having conversations with a private investment firm called Tavistock. Uh, Tavistock is a very large investment organization that owns hundreds of businesses around the world, including public listed companies. Um, and they were looking at investing in a couple of businesses across Sri Lanka, um, across engineering, IoT, data analytics. And one of the things they were looking at was marketing. So we had this opportunity to basically present ourselves as hey, we would be a really good addition to your portfolio because we could then help you optimize those hundreds of businesses, right? And, you know, they were kind of interested at first, but um, it was a little tricky. And we kind of came to this deal where they would, you know, technically get majority uh, control of the business. And once they did it, they say, okay, um, let's, okay, let's do this. Um, I flew to uh, Vegas. This was the first time I had gone to the US as well as traveled alone. Um, and, you know, they showed all of the things that we could potentially do together. And I knew I had to jump on this. Tricky part is they come back and say, okay, we've spoken to KPMG. They're going to go through your books and make sure your due diligence is good so that we can actually make the investment. Now, 18-year-old me had no idea what I was doing. So our books were an absolute mess. Um, we we had payments going out. We didn't have documentation of some invoices. Uh, part of the reason like that number is 162 days is we haven't issued invoices on time. There is just so many issues, complications, liabilities. And I was just stalling trying to fix this mess by and not letting them do the due diligence. Uh, to the point where we agreed on the deal in about March of 2017. And the due diligence process started in August because I was stalling till March to August. <laughs> and they took till August to December to actually do the DD because it was so bad. And they produced a report where it's like, there's 47 things that they're looking at. They categorized them in red for high risk, yellow for moderate risk, and green for no risk. <laughs> we had a green because 
we didn't have any um, drawing a blank here, but you give employees a benefit for once they stay for longer than five years. So we didn't have superannuation, I think. We didn't have any liability for that because we were less than five years old. We had a yellow because um, our rent agreement with the landlord at the time, we had lost it, but it was a very small rent. So they're like, yeah, worst case scenario, you know, they kick you out and you get a different place. So that was a yellow. All the other 40 something <laughs> things were just blatantly red. red. Um, and then Tavistock looked at this and like, this is lit up like a Christmas tree. What are we doing here? Um, but they, you know, kudos to them. They still believed in us and they said, look, I'll give you some time, go fix all of this. And then we'll do the deal at the same price point. But in the meantime, let's work together. So we took on a couple of projects and we started delivering really well on those projects. And they realized that we were good at what we were doing. We were just really terrible at running the business. Because <laughs> um, you know, doing good marketing work and running a marketing company are so two different. very different things. What happened was we looked at it and said, look, that was a shit show. But we now know the 40 something things that we have to fix. So if we go through this document that they produce and kind of treat it like a checklist and make sure every single item is checked off, we're good. Then by that logic, we should be running a clean shop. So we spend the next six months going like every week, we would complete one task again and again and again and again. And six months down the line, you know, we were at a point where we had a business that could go through a due diligence process, survive and be ready to go. And, you know, they took it in good faith and said, okay, you, you did what we asked you to and let's go. So it essentially took a year and a half from the first point they said, hey, we're interested in this to closing the paperwork and saying, okay, let's make the investment. Um, and that's where we realized, okay, this is perfect. At, at this point, we also had figured out that content was no longer a viable solution because we're based in Sri Lanka. We do a lot of work in the US, Australia, the UK, across the Middle East now. We can't create content because we would physically have to fly there to, you know, with a camera. So we ditched content completely and went with services that made sense um, in a almost like a remote model. And we just kept on building on that. So when Tavistock initially had the conversation with us, we were about 10 people. When the deal closed, we were about 20 people. This was in 2018, April. And I think this week or next week, worst case, we are going to be a hundred full-time people in the company. Wow. What a journey, Banuka. I just love how real and honest and transparent you've been with us, you know, being like, look, our books were shocking. It it was what it was. You know, we were 20 somethings trying to run a business and, you know, more so than that, we're, you know, in a, a difficult market that we're trying to navigate. For our peers out there listening who feel like, you know, perhaps they've got a side hustle idea or perhaps they've already started the business, but they feel like it needs to be perfect. And if it's not perfect, then they can't continue or they can't launch or they can't progress. You know, what advice would you give to them around the value of being scrappy in the early days, even if ultimately perhaps you do have to, you know, fix things up? What would be your advice and what would you say to them? I mean, I live by the rules of move fast and break things because if not, <laughs> it's just a really difficult thing to do, right? Because it's it's easy, like if you're a perfectionist, 
you can be perfect at your level. When your business starts growing and you need to work with teams, you're going to really struggle to find a lot of people that would work and operate the same way you do. So I think the solution to that is you can build systems and put processes in as you grow and as the business makes more and more sense. But in all honesty, perfectionism can really cripple a business, especially in the early stage. I think there is a point in any business that you need to be perfect. And that's probably closer to an IPO situation than you running and growing your business. Great. What has been the toughest point in your journey to date? I think it would easily be those six months of hell that we went through once we got those books, right? Because essentially, uh, from a local market standpoint, we were doing okay. We were doing well. We could pay ourselves. We could pay a couple of people. Uh, A third party comes in and says, actually, you guys are terrible. Um, Everything you've been doing is wrong. And you are not worthy of getting your investment. You're not worthy of having these external partners and you're just not ready. You think you're good, but you're not. We were also a little fueled by ego because we had been thinking we were good because the results of the efforts that we've put in on the campaigns that we were running were driving real value. It's just that it wasn't driving enough value to add value to our customers as well as our shareholders. It was just adding value to our customers. And you know, going from, okay, you've done this, you've built it on your own to someone just going and said, oh, wow, I wouldn't touch you with a 10-foot pole is really tough. So I am incredibly grateful for the team we had at the time that could actually help us navigate through these, you know, six months of just every single day going and breaking these problems down little by little and completing those tasks. Um, I'm incredibly grateful to that to this day. But I think that batch of time was the most toughest. It was also the most rewarding. How do we get back up when we feel like there's just no way? Um, Honestly, I think the only reason I did is because of the support of the team I had. And if it were me trying to do this alone, I probably am almost confident I would have just given up and walked away. Because search isn't the first thing I've tried. I've tried other things before. I've tried like, you know, random websites, side hustles, um, everything from an app idea to a cafe. Um, And I'd I'd say there was probably about a dozen things that collapsed before Surge. But Surge was probably the first that, you know, it went with a very partnership heavy mentality where it wasn't I, it was mostly we. And I think that really helped save us. And, you know, even when we had the investors come in, it's tricky to give someone else control of your business that you've been working on. And to come to terms with that is also not easy because you're essentially saying they know more than you do and about something that you've been building for the last couple of years. So I'd say the way that you get out of it all is through partnerships. Um, and just being incredibly open and collaborative with people that you're building this with because it's not a one-man job. It's not a one-man or one-woman job. 
how can we find those key people that can help us build and grow and do what we need to do in our businesses and also just in our lives and careers? Um, I am still struggling with this question, so I'll try <laughs> yeah. to answer it the best I people. can. So hard. I was very lucky with a couple of the early people that we had in the team. Uh, we met them in the same circumstances and they, um, you know, it grew with us. At the same time, there's also the exact opposite ends of the spectrum where, you know, we got a bunch of people that have been playing video games their entire life and now we're like, hey, we'll pay you. Doesn't always go well as well, right? Uh, like we had some situations where we just had a couple of people <laughs> being complete stoners in the office and not doing anything. So I think it was a lot of trial and error. Um, and there's also this expectation, the team that you have will not and should not put as much effort into your business as you do, right? It's your baby. Um, the upside for you, even though the risk for you is much higher, the upside for you is also exponentially higher. Um, the ones that you think are the right fit, it's, I'd say it's kind of like a relationship. Give them some skin in the game and get them involved and make sure that they're, they are compensated, they're taken care of. And usually what happens is that if you do that, they're in it for the long run. And it's all like retention is one of the toughest problems to solve. Um, we let go of people quickly if they don't fit the culture, they don't fit the work ethic and they don't fit the style of work that we do. But from the people that survive our first three months, our retention is quite staggeringly good. Um, the first, uh, like our team member number one who started from the YouTube days, they're still with us today. And like, I was incredibly happy that we could issue our dividend, I could write him a check. Um, and, you know, I think those things are super important. How do we build good culture? Um, I think the people that you're getting or the people at positions of leadership need to feel like they're a part of the, the process of the business, as in trying to solve the same problems that you're trying to solve. They need to want to do it. And if enough people that are driving the decisions of the business, if the organization is transparent and they know that they're being looked after, that's really what helps them. And for us, we've seen that is kind of what drives culture, at least at Surge. It's not always easy. You have bad apples. You have to, you know, we've had situations where we had to let people go for multiple reasons from performance to um, just not fitting in with the rest of the team, uh, issues around ego and things like that. I, I think it's a little bit of everything. And for every business, it's going to be different depending on what your objectives are, what type of problems you're trying to solve. And the DNA of the business, does the person that you're hiring actually match up to what you want to achieve and what you want the representation of the organization to be? And I think you have to think really carefully about that. Um, it gets a lot harder where we're at this point where over the next year, we'll probably hire another 100 people. And that's about two people every week. So Jeez. you need to then figure out how do you build the systems and processes to do that without you? Because right now in our business, I'm not involved in hiring at all, um, unless it's like a senior position or something. And it's scary, but we've found enough people at those positions of leadership where we can go, okay, I really trust you and this is up to you now. Um, if it goes wrong, you're liable, you take accountability for it, but this is your baby too now. So, you know, let's 
build it together. So, so valuable. And just something that I personally am, you know, three and a half years in and, you know, dealing with all of the ups and downs and people and hiring and understanding positions and who's going to fit the culture. All this stuff is things that I'm personally going through. So I really appreciate your insight and your advice. And hopefully our peers out there listening have gained value from that as well. Amazing, Banuka. Look, we could talk for days and days, but I am mindful of your time. So I've got to couple of final questions for you. Before I dive into them, during the last seven years of business, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received a lot of recognition for your work and most notably you were featured on the Forbes 30 Under 30 Asia list. You know, what are three key pieces of advice that you would give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? Oh, Easy. Um, don't try to do everything on, by yourself. It is a team effort. It's not a one-man job. Um, be as open, honest, and transparent as possible because if everyone has a common goal, it's a lot easier to achieve it than trying to you know, play behind the shadows and learn to let go. Because I I have a tendency to micromanage things. I like numbers. I like to get into the weeds of things. And, you know, you become your own bottleneck. And that's never a great situation. So uh, put a lot of effort into hiring the right people so you can let go. But as quickly as you can let go, do it. I love that. Look, I want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Banuka, for all of the incredible work you've done and that you're doing for showing us that we don't have to be perfect. You know, it doesn't have to all be in line. We can just, you know, have it be scrappy and follow our dreams and passions in a way that perhaps isn't a hundred percent, but we know is right deep down. And for that, we really appreciate you. And thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Of course. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? For me right now, um, I'm very focused on growing this business. And there's a couple of reasons for it. For me, the main thing is the fact that we are adding a ton of value Um, to the place that we grew up in. We are bringing in lots of, uh, you know, revenue to the country that didn't exist, as well as we are making the lives of people that are working in our organizations a lot better. Um, We uh, just a little bit of side story. We pay more than all of our competitors. We, the majority of our team members that are working with us, we found out they're also the breadwinners in their family. And we opt in a very low margin as shareholders because we want to increase the quality of life that the team members have. And this is partly how we solve that retention issue as well. So, you know, as we grow, we're adding a ton of value back into the community. Yes, we do consulting. Yes, we work with, you know, businesses building out tech and doing all of those things. But at the end of the day, it is a collection of people. Uh, The 100 people that work for us have positively impacted the lives of thousands of others around them. And that is a really great feeling. And we can, you know, solve real systemic issues by doing this. And that's what we're working towards. 
incredible Manuka. Oh my goodness. It's absolutely amazing what you do and we've had an absolute blast. Where can we learn more about you and Surge Global? Um, if you need to get a hold of me, I am very active on LinkedIn and Instagram. So just look me up um, as well as Surge. Uh, so we do digital strategy consulting uh, and building our teams for both uh, marketing growth as well as product development and engineering. You can visit us at surge.global. We're always happy to have a chat. Amazing. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again. Really appreciate it. It's been awesome. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest beer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.